So tonight I want to speak a little bit more on, uh, you know, on the liberating capacity of the seven factors of enlightenment and how to activate that liberating capacity. And, uh, you know, as I've said like several times, you know, working with the seven factors of enlightenment is about, you know, honing and training our capacity to be affected, you know, by our experience in a, in a way, you know, which is in accordance with truth or in accordance with reality. And, and for that, you know, we have to train them to become stronger and, and more available to us. And then, you know, once they are like up and running, so to say, we have to point them towards certain features of experience we usually don't look at such as impermanence, in particular endings, you know, because that doesn't seem to come easy for us human beings, you know, to look at endings. And uh, so, you know, we have to really connect with our vulnerability and, you know, vulnerability is, is um, you know, one of the, the qualities as human beings which we have and you know, we tend to build up a lot of defense around those. And in reality, you know, vulnerability is a very great um, capacity we have because we are vulnerable. We can be really affected by our experience. And, uh, you know, to not turn away from that vulnerability is something we need to train ourselves in. And if you look at evolution, you know, evolution is a increasing vulnerability a rock is very invulnerable in, in some in many ways compared with a tree you know and then a tree is much less vulnerable than a, an animal or a human being you know and we human beings we are supremely vulnerable you know if you look at you know how we can get affected you know when we are born as babies we are for a very long time dependent on our environment you know that the environment attunes with our needs and if it doesn't we can have some very deep you know traumatic kind of wounding you know which might you know be with us our whole life if we don't you know find the skill and, and opportunity you know to, to learn about how to you know investigate that and, and heal it so you know we have to really be fully willing, you know, to, to be vulnerable and, and to allow ourselves to really feel. And I've said it a few times, you know, because I think it can't be said often enough because it's, it's not easy, you know. And, uh, you know, and through allowing ourselves to be really vulnerable, you know, we, we, have a, we, we gain a deeper range of experience because we are touched you know by experiences we usually defend ourselves against and then if we really allow ourselves to be touched by those experiences then we automatically have also like a much wider range of responses and our life you know becomes more and more you know real and and more and more satisfying also and then in order to be able to activate that potential, we have to sometimes, you know, go through 
very difficult gateways, you know, where we have to kind of consciously put down defenses and, you know, allow ourselves to be really affected and opened up, you know, or heartbreaking experiences, you know, where the heart breaks in many pieces and then the heart can embrace much more than before when it was just like a kind of small heart, you know. If the heart needs, you know, is gets bigger, it can only get bigger through breaking. And, you know, we don't get much encouragement, you know, to allow our hearts to be broken because it's, because it's painful. But I'm so glad, you know, my heart got broken many times because without that I would have, I don't know what I would have been, you know, doing or not doing. So I think it's just part of life and I'm sure, you know, all of you know that too. And, uh, you know, this paradox, you know, with being 100% vulnerable, we become 100% invulnerable because of allowing, you know, things to really be what they are and not trying to control it. And that's, you know, it's the same as in letting go of fixation, of needing to have things a particular way. And, you know, that makes us more and more independent of conditions and that's what renunciation is all about, you know. It's not just about giving up you know, to eat dinner or something like that, or supper, rather it's called, I think. But uh, it's much more than that. It's Most of all, it's about giving up views about the way things are. And, you know, and by giving away things, that's, that's a good way to start with that, you know. But in the end, we have to give away, you know, very deep-held views and opinions in order to be really able to, to wake up. And in order to do that, you know, we have to start where we are and we don't need anything else than what is just in front of our noses, you know, because all phenomena, all experiences yield liberation as their essence if we approach them in the right way. And that's really very good news, you know, because we don't need to have a special situation in order to to practice. We can just practice with what we have got. We just need to know how to do it and then do it. And I brought a poem, which is my favorite poem in this book of the anthology of the Bikuni poems. And I have read it out in the group here already probably more than once, but I read it again because I think it's, it's so meaningful. And the... Nan, who speaks in that poem, is called Vichaya, Victor. And she, said, she says, <clears throat> When everyone else was meditating, I'd be outside, circling the hall. Finally, I went to confess, I'm hopeless, I said. The elder Nan smiled, just keep going, nothing stays in orbit forever. If this circling is all you have, why not make this circling your home? I did as she told me and went on circling the hall. If you find yourself partly in and partly out, if you find yourself drawn to this path and also drawing away, I can assure you, you are in good company. Just keep going. 
sometimes the most direct path is in a straight line. You know, and I think this is what she's saying here, you know. It's not about kind of having a blank mind or having a, a still mind. It's about really meeting one's experience where it is and what it is and, and, and then starting from there and the mind will settle down when it's ready to settle down. There is no need to push it around, you know. The only things which is really important is to kind of not veer away from the precepts. This is, you know, where the precepts are really important because that's really the limit, you know. But what's going on in the mind is really, it's okay, whatever it is, you know. You can think about breaking all of the precepts a million times. If you don't do it, it's fine. Because the thinking, you know, is something that takes time and we need to allow it to be what it is and then slowly kind of, you know, rein it in, but not, you know, kind of shut it down. That is really not helpful. So, you know, we have to train this vulnerability to be able to bear this mess, you know, and the chaos, which gets stirred up in the mind from time to time. And, you know, I personally don't find it so helpful to bring in antidotes, you know, to try to kind of bend the mind and influence the mind to be different than what it is. I think it's much more important to kind of really work on having, you know, having a <coughs> steady enough kind of life situation so one can hold, you know, hold all of that which is coming up and use it as a means, you know, to learn about the way things are, really. And... Uh, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, for example, there is a, there's a teaching, and I've brought a list along, you know, a teaching about how the negative emotions can actually, you know, be used as a as a raw material, you know, to be transmuted into into different kinds of wisdom. And uh, in that list, you know, anger, for example, that the sharpness and the clarity of anger you know, can be used, it shouldn't be kind of thrown out, you know, but it can be used and transmuted into what's called mirror-like wisdom. And, you know, anger knows what is wrong, but then it adds something else to it which is not wholesome, you know, but that the clarity of saying no, we need that, you know, we need that strength. It's, no need, it's not good to try to get rid of it or to be afraid of it, you know. And then desire... Desire knows exactly what it wants, you know, and, and, and also has some strategies how, how to get it, you know. So that can be transmuted in wisdom of discernment, you know, knowing what and how. And then delusion or ignorance you know, is able to kind of accommodate and, you know, it doesn't have any sharp edges, it's, it's kind of gentle in some way, and you know, spacious, and that can be transmuted into space-like wisdom. And pride, you know, experiencing pride and then, you know, not needing to be special, that can be transmuted into the wisdom of equanimity and jealousy or envy, you know, being jealous or envious of somebody else's qualities or success, you know, 
and that can be uh, transmuted into appropriate action and all accomplishing wisdom. So, you know, those negative emotions, they also, they hold a core of wisdom in them, which we can't afford, you know, to waste. So, if we can be, you know, if we're able to hold steady this core of wisdom inside of those negative emotions, will reveal itself. But if we kind of too quickly, you know, try to get rid of it, or, you know, try to make it something else, then that's not necessarily the most skillful approach. It's only really necessary if we think, you know, that we can't hold steady with it, if we feel like we don't have the strength. Then then I think we should try to do anything, you know, not to be carried away by it. And... So, you know, all phenomena have liberation as their essence. You know, even the negative emotions, everything has liberation as their essence because everything is impermanent, unsatisfactory and empty of a self. That's why it has that capacity, you know, to teach us if we look in the right way. And... You know, uh, an addition to working with the seven factors of enlightenment is to use them in a particular way. And there are four meditative themes, you know, with which we have to approach the seven factors of enlightenment. And the first one is, you know, to establish, we spoke about that already, you know, to establish the mind so it is secluded from the hindrances, so that the hindrances are at least, you know, temporarily in, in abeyance. And we have had that, you know, temporary liberation of the mind. We have experienced that a few times, I think, in the guided meditation also. You know, if there's no hindrances going on and the mind is just like open, that's, you know, a mind being which is secluded from the hindrances. So that's the first theme. The second one is, is, you know, paying attention to impermanence. You know, when I was saying when the mind was like open like the sky, you know, then pay attention to what's moving through the sky, the clouds and the birds and whatever, the aeroplanes, whatever comes through, doesn't leave a, a, a permanent trail or anything. Just moves through and then it's gone. And just, you know, paying attention to that and not holding on to any of those and really kind of allowing the mind to be deeply informed about the truth of impermanence, just by really, you know, looking at this and allowing it to kind of sink in. We don't have to think about it. We just have to really fully pay attention to it. it it's transformative, really. It's very, very simple. This is why, why it's not so easy to do, you know, to keep really interested yeah, second factor of enlightenment. That's not easy, but that's what needs to be done, you know. That's the work. That's the energy can help with that, you know. So really paying attention to it. And what happens then is like the second theme, which is like, in Pali it's called viraga, which means dispassion, you know, that passion starts to fade away. And the word raga uh, comes, you know, from the Bali word rang, which means to color. 
when I was speaking yesterday about those bowls of water, you know, which have like different things in it. So that color or that algae or the mud or whatever is in there, it's going to slowly but surely be, you know, disappear through the repetition of looking at impermanence. Because the mind knows, you know, to hold on to that which is impermanent is ultimately meaningless, you know. But it needs to be shown that, you know. Like I said, you know, like a little dog, you know. You have to just show him or her like many times and then at one point she's going to get it, you know. The mind is the same. And so fading away of craving is what's going to be the result of really deeply looking at impermanence. Fading away of craving. Or attachment or fixation or however you want to call it. And then the, the next theme is, you know, if, if craving fades away, what's, what's going to happen? What's going to be the next result? We have to look at this, the cessation of, of dukkha, cessation of suffering. Because, you know, suffering or dukkha isn't inherent in objects, but it is the result of the way we are approaching objects. Because we approach impermanent objects as if they would be permanent. And that's just something we really need to pay attention to, you know. So the mind is secluded from the hindrances, then we pay attention to impermanence, and then, you know, we also look at the fading away of craving and how that results in cessation of suffering, neuroda. Is that the Pali word for that? Cessation of suffering <coughs> just simply through allowing things to end. You know, and that's, that's why I say it's important always, you know, if we have a, a good meditation to at the end of the meditation to pay attention that okay, now it's over and now something else is going to start, you know. And to allow that ending to really experience the ending fully and then there's a gap, you know, between the ending of one thing and the starting of the next thing. To allow that gap to just be there, not kind of immediately running and filling in again. Because it's that gap, you know, where the next meditative theme, you know, comes bear on by letting go, you know, letting go in the beginning, letting go of unwholesome things, and then if the practice, you know, becomes more mature, letting go of everything. And, you know, and we can train ourselves in that if we pay attention to endings and to the gap, which is between endings and beginnings, like the, with the breathing, you know, breathing in, there is a little gap and then breathing out and then a little gap and breathing in again. Or like in, in our lives, you know, when things end, somebody dies, we lose something, you know, we get, there are some changes. We usually, you know, if there's like an empty gap, we quickly run to fill it up again because we somehow, you know, we somehow don't want to be in that spacing between, but it's really very important to allow that to be, you know. That's like a, a very good way of training the mind, you know, to be able to acknowledge that emptiness, you know, from which 
everything arises and ceases back into again. And that's, we need to, you know, do some kind of conscious, concerted effort to be able to to get used to that, to train ourselves in, in doing this, you know. And in the meditation we start doing it, but then we also need to do that in our lives as well. If we really wanted to be, you know, get strong, we have to not only do it on the cushion in the formal meditation, but also do it in our lives. So this is those four meditative themes, you know, or four features of experience we usually gloss over, you know. Because we are kind of much more interested in beginnings. Because there's a kind of an exciting energy and everybody kind of, that seems to be a good thing. And uh, we just need to familiarize ourselves with the other half, you know, of the equation because reality just like, you know, has both beginnings and endings and gaps between beginnings and endings and endings and beginnings. So if we want to be, you know, if we want to awake to the way things are, we have to balance out this kind of tendency of being only interested in half of, of all of it, you know, because it's just not going to work this way. You know, we cannot be enlightened or we cannot really awake to reality if we, if we don't learn the whole thing, you know. And, and that's why these, these uh, instructions are really important. And uh, it's not really kind of rocket science, I think, you know, it's actually quite simple. But we just need to know that this is the situation, you know, and, and, and then do it. And then we will see, you know, the repercussions of it. And uh, it's also important, you know, to not use force because that's not going to work. But the process is more like, you know, looking after a flower, like putting all of the right things you know, in place, the earth and fertilizer, water, sun, and everything what's needed, warmth, and then the flower will just blossom by itself because it it knows, you know, and the mind also is like this. We don't have to, you know, make it to be a certain way. It's much, much more suitable, you know, for this process to take place by kind of allowing it to be what it is and then gently, you know, kind of trying to encourage it to, go, you know, to go into the right direction with having a real clear aspiration why we are practicing and really make that conscious, you know. That is like I said that before, you know, the aspiration or the intention or, you know, why we are practicing and, and taking the refugees and the precepts, they are just like, you know, the GPS system, which is kind of guiding the mind, you know, from, from here, really, you know, because that, that's, that's where, where the power lies, you know, from which everything receives 
intention is from it comes from the it's called chitta or, or heart mind you know it's not like from here and uh, so seeing endings and and letting go in the gap before the next thing starts that is the fourth of the the fourth of those four themes I, I was like mentioning. So I'm just gonna sum it up one more time. Establishing the mind, you know, secluded from unwholesome states, which is the mind free from the hindrances, and then turning the minds towards impermanence and really kind of allowing that to inform the mind about the way things are, which then is going to result in dispassion or in the fading away of craving. And then the fading away of craving is going to result in cessation of suffering or cessation of stressfulness. And then you know, if the mind is seeing this very clearly, the connection, you know, between letting go of craving and cessation of suffering, the mind will be more and more able and poised towards complete letting go. And that's really, you know, what what uh, we try to train ourselves in, you know, so that the mind is strong enough so it can stay open and clear and it can really bear witness to the to these processes, you know, bear witness to impairment. Whenever, you know, something happens in life which is difficult, you know, the mind immediately knows this is impermanent. And there's immediately a letting go happening, you know, of, of, of the attachment. And then, you know, when like five years earlier there was a big deal and then suddenly there's, there might be still some amount of dukkha, but much less, you know. I can definitely see that in my own life, you know. And... So it's a, it's, a, it's a gradual path, you know, and in the suttas it's also compared with the, the ocean, you know. The ocean kind of slopes gently, gently, you know, it, it becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. It's not like just like this. And the practice is like this as well. And then at one point there is a drop. But we can't really force that to happen. And as I was mentioning about the hen, you know, sitting on her eggs, that's what we need to do. And the carpenter, you know, who uses his ace, and then like after a few years he's looking and he sees, oh, you know, the handle of the ace is worn down, but he doesn't know when that exactly happened. So it's small changes, you know, and to really kind of pay attention to those changes because they... You know, they help us to have more faith, more confidence in in the practice and that this is really possible.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.